0: The best CEOs are not looking to make all the decisions, right? They're looking to distribute that authority um, and have trust in their, in their people. Early on, asking for that CEO to set expectations, right? Like, how would, how would you like us to communicate with each other? How do you view the role of marketing? I think it's often the misalignment between the CEO and the head of marketing that causes problems. Um, And it's because of failing to set those expectations up front.
1: Welcome to The Get, the marketing talent podcast. This is Erica Seidel, your host. We explore what it takes to get and keep the best marketing leaders in the B2B SaaS world. We all know as marketers, marketers can be very extroverted, very articulate. And so they can show up really well in interviews. So how do you go beyond the interview and actually uh, evaluate them how they are likely to, uh, to behave and fit into a company and how they really are? I've always been fascinated by this, and one of the uh, tools that I have used before to, to help this out um, is the predictive index. And so I'm really happy to welcome to the show uh, a friend of mine and our guest, Drew Fortin, who is the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Sales at the Predictive Index, um, he and I have collaborated on a bunch of different things. Um, most recently, a really fun workshop on building badass marketing teams with talent optimization. And we are going to be talking about his experiences as a marketing leader and the um, uh, of shepherding a marketing organization through hypergrowth. We are going to be talking about how to get beyond interviews and, and get insight into candidates' behavioral profiles, and we're going to be talking about uh, just building teams and talent optimization in general. So, Drew, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Erica. You are a badass.
1: <laughs> As are you, and that leads me into our first question. Um, uh, this is a question I've been asking a lot of marketing leaders lately. What is that question that you would like to get to prove that you are a, a really strong marketer?
0: It would probably be a question that would allow me to demonstrate uh, agility, flexibility, and um, you know the, the whole not being afraid to give away my Legos, which is like, because at least in my experience, marketing kind of is straddling product. It's straddling sales. Um, it's often the liaison or the conduit between those things. Operations is getting involved in marketing. And so we need to be really good at really, at understanding the business context of the situation that we're in and um, demonstrating that we're able to keep the things that we're going to be amazing at and give away the things that other people are going to be amazing at or other departments are going to be amazing at executing. So it would probably be a question like, you know, give me an example or tell me how you view the role of marketing in an org in general and how that would evolve over
1: time. I'm curious about how you ended up in your role and uh, why you own what you own, right? You own marketing, you own sales. I think you have a partnership aspect to what you do. Uh, Can you talk about that?
0: this goes right back to the last comment I had about business context. So the predictive index itself has been around since the fifties, right? And it was born in, um, in partner distribution channel. So it was born hundred percent distributed through third party, uh, resellers and people who are facilitating the predictive index assessments and workshops back in the day. And those are called PI certified partners. And that was a brilliant model in a pre-internet, <laughs> Era. But now once, you know, post-internet era and now in a completely digital world, um, it, it it doesn't really stand the test of time as being the, the, the sole mechanism to market, dis- distribute, and sell and service product. Uh, when I first started managing the team, and now the sales and marketing team has grown from a, a team of me to a team of about uh, 60 people, the first order of business was to... Kind of write um, the ship, if you will, from a, a brand guidelines. We, we we went through a brief rebranding. We um, we made sure that the website itself established PI as as the um, provider and creator of the product. Yet the the network was still a big part in the distribution and sales and servicing of the product. So that's ultimately was my charter when I when I joined. And we started to do heavy inbound marketing. Um, our, our average contract value is about $10,000 a year. We're a B2B business. Um, that average contract value is not huge. Um, so we, need to, we needed to um, use tactics and strategies that were going to keep our customer acquisition costs in, in check. And so we started heavily investing in content marketing, inbound marketing, marketing, Um, creating a website that would, uh, from an SEO perspective, would attract traffic in in that way.
1: So previously, uh, you did not report to a CEO before your PI experience, as I I recall, and now you are reporting to a CEO. Uh, What tips do you have for a new head of marketing that is um, in their first experience reporting to a CEO as opposed to reporting to a CMO?
0: Just reporting to the CEO is one thing, but then being super aware of the different relationships of people um, and and how they view their relationship with with the CEO and each other is super important. Um, I think a lot of people will realize, yeah, there are situations where a CEO is there kind of pulling all the puppet strings and making things happen. The best CEOs are not looking to make all the decisions, right? They're looking to distribute that authority um, and have trust in their, in their people. So I, I, I think the advice that I would have is early on asking for that CEO to set expectations, right? Like how would, how would you like us to communicate with each other? How do you view the role of marketing? What's in scope as far as what I uh, should be, I the head of marketing uh, sh- should be able to make decisions with, without, in involving you, and and what's out of scope of that, and that would be things that we both need to make decisions on, or as a broader management team, we need we need to make decisions on. I think it's often the misalignment between the CEO and the head of marketing that causes problems, um, and it's because of failing to set those expectations up front.
1: Yes, it's interesting. In our uh, our workshop, we've. Uh, put together this slide that talks about this alignment between um, let me see if I remember it now expectations, responsibilities authority mm-hmm. resources and there's a fifth one that I'm forgetting right now uh, <laughs> but those things need to be in alignment and uh, it's interesting there is a, um, there's an article in HBR about how CMOs do not fail because of lack of ability. They don't fail because of lack of effort. They fail because of, of a lack of alignment and a lack of, of role design that that really aligns their responsibilities with the expectations of the CEO and the rest of the leadership team.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I would I would argue it's team sale because of the lack of alignment and the lack of expectation set, right? But yeah, definitely in the, the marketing context, it's, it's often going to be that That head of marketing and the um, CEO—that's going to be the failure point. Or a CMO overseeing a broad, you know, go-to-market strategy and having multiple uh, marketing heads of various marketing functions reporting into them—is that the lines of the alignment can break there as
1: well? So you mentioned teams. So let's let's pivot into that. Um, One interesting thing I think about your team is that you have. you basically hold people accountable not just for quantitative business results but for, uh, for more of a cu- on the cultural side of things. You, know, you hold mm-hmm. people accountable for behaving in ways that match the stated culture, whether that's the culture of PI or that plus the culture of your team. Uh, can you talk about that?
0: From a, from a leadership standpoint, if someone were ever to be like, Drew, what's your leadership style? What's your management style? Um, you know, most people say I'm results driven. And as long as you provide results, I don't care what, what you do. And, you know, to me, that's a load of BS because businesses these days, you are not differentiated by the product that you have. You're not going to be differentiated by the awesome marketing campaigns that, that you do. You're going to be differentiated as a marketing leader by the team that you pull together and the magic or chemistry that that team has, because that's going to be the the unique component, that's, that's going to be the differentiator for you and what makes innovation from a marketing or product standpoint. And so if that's the case, if it comes down to the team, then I believe it's my obligation as a sales and marketing leader to manufacture and create that the right environment with the right culture for that chemistry to happen. And so, I, I would say I spend much more of my time, um, the majority of my time, on the people components of my team in the business, and, and that's, you know, making sure that we are, we are all upholding our core values, right? So, at PI, we have a, just a general core values framework that we call Thread, which is teamwork, uh, honesty, energy, action, drive, and scope, and each of those has something that we can remember, things that we should be always be espousing and living by. I'm a huge proponent of Patrick Lencioni's framework of five dysfunctions of the team. I've taken those five dysfunctions and and turned them, uh, and, instead of dis, dysfunctions, we we kind of build a layered pyramid. And at the bottom of that peer, pyramid is trust. We all, need, we all need to have trust, right? And if we have that trust, then we can have healthy conflict. And in marketing, conflict is necessary. Conflict between sales, conflict between product, conflict between each other to make sure that that content piece or that marketing campaign um, or our goals, right? Conflict that we're always questioning and doing and challenging ourselves to be the best and to do the right things, right? That conflict then turns into commitment because now that we've left it all out on the table, we can truly commit. And we have a saying here that's kind of adopted from Jeff, Jeff Bezos and Amazon, which is you know, th- the concept of disagree and commit. You can't disagree and commit unless you've had the conflict, because if you don't have the conflict, you didn't share your opinions, you're, you're gonna disagree and sabotage, right? And so we're, we're super upfront about that. Once you commit, now you have what you need to truly hold people accountable. And I think you asking me that, that question about culture You can absolutely, as a leader, hold people accountable through culture. Just because you met your goals and your performance expectations, we see this in sales all the time, we see this in demand gen marketing all the time, just because you you met your 2,000 MQL quota for the month does not matter. You need to make sure that you're holding yourself accountable and others accountable. If you could have done more, you should have said that you can do more. And so you have trust, conflict, commitment, accountability, and only then – can you truly say that you're driving towards results? So I don't buy people that say that they're results first or results focused, because if you're just focused on results, chances are you're probably going to lose some dead bodies and you're probably going to lose some inefficiencies in in your wake.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And one, one framework um, I've been using recently with clients is um, this, uh, it's like concentric circles, and at the, at the center, it's cultural fit. And then if you look out a little bit mm-hmm. further, it's cultural add. And then if you stretch it out further, it's cultural stretch. And um, mm. I think that, that framework has been helpful because some companies will I say, oh, I need somebody that's an exact cultural fit. Uh, but then if it's people that have been working together for, in some cases, 10 years, it's going to be very hard to feel that somebody from the outside that is new is a, is a fit. Um, and so then we start talking about that cultural ad. I like how you're thinking about it as well, like as the the work and the evolution of the team changes, you need to bring in people that are that are going to layer in and be ads. Um, I mean, find it helpful to have that outer layer of cultural stretch um, because in, in many cases, we actually don't want a cultural stretch unless we really have wholesale organizational change to be made. But by realizing that there is a stretch out there, sometimes people can say, oh, okay, actually I want to stay within this ad or this fit um, uh, kind yep. of circles.
0: So, Absolutely, yeah, um, and as, as, you were talking, as you were talking about that, I think one of the areas when I talk about like, that framework of trust, conflict, commitment, accountability, and results, it's more that conflict and accountability component with, with the culture com- component. Because you can have culture fit, but hopefully that doesn't mean that everyone's just kind of appeasing each other and kind of acting like lemmings because everyone's the same. Like that me, I think that almost makes it harder to manage team team dynamic because you probably as the leader have to pull the conflict out of people, right. Or pull that different opinion out of people, um, or go somewhere else for that different opinion and perspective. So you don't have like this group think thing happening. Right.
1: You mentioned in passing that your team has grown from you to 60 people, so that's, that's quite an achievement. Um, Mazel tov, as they say. Um, what uh, you know, We talked about a golden question that you would want to be asked um, to prove that you're a great marketer. Is there a golden question that you ask people who interview with you uh, to see if they are badass marketers?
0: Yeah, so I think it, it depends on the position, but I'm a huge fan of Who by Jeff Smart, which is a whole, he invented like the, the whole top grade interview system, right? And if you were to top grade interview someone, it would take you like four hours to interview some, someone. But I, I take notions of that. Um, so a little in, inside baseball. Um, whenever I Whenever I interview someone, yeah, I can look at their work experience to understand if they have the skills and experience, right? So I'm assuming that by looking at their resume, yes, I'm going to ask you some questions about your experience and your skills, but what's going to make you a great marketer is I'm looking for a special culture ad when I'm talking to you. So I I usually have a high level question that is something like all of us have superpowers, right? The superpowers can be used for good or bad. What do you consider to be your superpowers? And what, what are you? What do you aspire to be and do? Right? What do you want to do with those? And the responses I get are amazing, um, always different, because it's a it's a vague enough question that uh, some people may be saying, "Well, maybe these are the superpowers that Drew wants to hear, or these are my true superpowers," and it leads to a good kickoff of a conversation. It sets the right framing and context, which is. I'm looking to add you to the team. So what are you going to bring to the team and how, and now that I know what you aspire to be and do, I can think about it in the context of the role you're going to be coming into and the future growth of the team and, and have a pretty good idea about, okay, this person's a big thinker. Um, this, this person is a marketing generalist, but really has a passion and desire to go deep in an area, right? So that's, that's kind of how it starts at a high, high level. And then from a skills and experience standpoint, um, so I start off with that question, and then I have them take two jobs from their, uh, from their resume, and I, and, I, and I say, first, what is the best job you've had to date? Why? What, what, what do you love about it? What do you not like about it? Because it's not always rainbows and kittens. Um, and then tell me a proudest moment and a failure point. Um, and then I'll ask, you know, who, who did you report to in those roles or who was a mentor to you while you were there? And let's have a conversation. What is that person going to say about you when I call them, right? And try to get some really good information. And it's typically through that explanation. I have them give me their best job they've had to date. And then their worst job that they've had, had to date that I get a really good idea of the experiences that they've had, the skills that they have, the lack of skills that they have, what they're good at what they're not good at. And then more importantly, if there's usually a common thread between the two, not everyone's perfect. So even in your best job you ever had and your worst job you ever had, like for, for me, for instance, I'm not a huge structure and details guy. So that's a thread that's carried throughout every job in my career. The worst jobs I've had, people required more structure of me. And so I didn't like them as much. The best jobs that I've had required the least amount of me to build all the structure and process. Um, but the same thread is I don't, I, I appreciate structure and process, but I'm not the person to put in charge of your operations team, right? So it's those two primary questions um, that really provide me all I need, and it usually takes about an hour to get through.
1: So you talked a little bit about um, the behavioral profile that the predictive index gives you, um, and it is, it's, yeah. it's amazing, right? You spend five minutes tops answering these questions about how you see yourself and how others are likely to see you. And you get basically instantaneously this output, this readout of, of, of your behavioral profile. And uh, for instance, I'm a captain, right? Other people, as you say, are, are you know, venturers. Some people are scholars. Yeah. You know, there's, there's all these different, um, all these different uh, kind of archetypes. So, um, and, it's, and it's awesome because you, you know, it helps you get at a lot of the softer stuff that might take um, hours and hours or months and months to, to come out. So right. my question for you is, you know, you call it a behavioral profile and it helps you as a hiring leader to predict how somebody is going to behave in certain situations. How does that dovetail with cultural fit?
0: Uh, I think that's an awesome question. So we all have our own unique patterns. As you said, yes, there are almost these what we call reference profiles, which are archetypes. um, And it's more, I would say like, yeah, I live in this neighborhood, but it's not your exact address. It's just a good guide, right? And um, a culture typically maps to uh, two or three of those archetypes in a certain way. So if I use the predictive index culture, for instance, the predictive index is a very fast paced environment. Um, it can be a very assertive or dominant environment, meaning like people are not afraid to speak up and express their ideas um, or be competitive about that. People are fairly proactive. And so uh, on average, and if we look at the culture that we've manufactured here at PI, which is we took a 50 year old company and totally like broke it and rebuild it. And now, and now we're scaling it that takes a lot of innovation and agility and proactiveness and kind of muscling your way through things. And that is core to PI's culture. So if you were to put PI's culture in a behavioral pattern, there are a few patterns that match that highly dominant, fast paced risk taker mentality. Um, and that, that's kind of the, that's the culture itself. Now if if we're hiring an operations person, right, That operation, uh, an operations person may be more, I'm going to follow the rules, there are, there's a certain way to do things, there are certain results that we are looking for, so we're going to let the data and the details and the structure guide us, and we're going to be really objective and not kind of do things just based off of our own gut feel and opinion. We're going to let the data tell us, right? That would be a typical operations person. Well, at PI, because we'd be looking for an operations person, but we'd also be looking for, let's say it was a senior operations person or a head of operations, that person likely would, would have to be a bit of a, um, a, a different type of operations person. We'd probably look for an operations person that maybe had a little higher dominance, maybe was um, a bit of a risk-taking operations person. There, there are those out there. Um, so, so that we got the skills and the competency, but they could essentially serve as a translator, if you will, to other folks on their team, who would be more the quintessential um, operator types of patterns. Um, so it, it really, it really depends, but you need to be deliberate about not breaking, for instance, we have our threads core, core values, and we, and we, we have kind of our cultural behaviors, you don't want, you don't want to break those, right? Because if you're all things to everyone, you're nothing. So there definitely is some line that you have to toe from a cultural standpoint um, because it will all break down if you don't.
1: So you and I have led a few different workshops now on building badass marketing teams with talent optimization. Yeah. And um, as you say, it, we, we follow this structure of you know aligning company strategy marketing strategy to hiring to leadership. it's kind of like a straight line that we build. And the most pivotal moment in the workshop that we have run so far um, has been this one exercise where we give people a set amount of fake money. I don't know how much money it is, let's you know whatever say it's a million dollars you know in fake money. and we ask them to apportion the money across different areas of marketing. And we say, align this, uh, like apportion this with how you are currently um, uh, kind of uh, focusing your people budget. Uh, So if you have three times as much investment in demand gen as you do in product marketing, then they put three times the amount of fake money into the demand gen pile um, than they do into product marketing. And then we say, okay, assume you've been fired. You're out. Your successor comes in. They look at the company strategy how would that successor apportion the money? And everybody does it and they apportion the money a little bit differently than what they had initially. So in almost every case, we have people who are hiring and budgeting in ways in, in marketing that don't necessarily align with their strategy.
0: I, I think the, the biggest insight for me in all of this is it's, it's really hard to play the long game. Meaning, you know, you have, uh, when you think about it all, right, it's, okay, we are going to develop a go-to-market strategy or a marketing plan based off of what the company's trying to accomplish over the next, you know, let's say three to five years, because that's often how we we, we outlook a plan or strategy. Um, you're absolutely right. A lot of folks have difficulty articulating, you know, what that strategy is, and, and if they do, then you can bet their team does, and then you can bet definitely, you know, that there's definitely going to be misalignment in the allocation of the budget and, and, and the resources. But I, I think what it is, is it's a, it's a sign of, you know, taking this back full circle to when we started our conversation about whether you're a CMO or a VP marketing, and you're reporting to the CEO, or if you're a VP marketing or a senior marketing person reporting to the CMO. It shows that the expectations have not been clearly defined, and if you're making changes, we. And you probably recall too, Erica. We had some people in our workshops that are like, "Well, I could make this change, but but this is the way that it was when I got there, right?" And and so then it's like, okay, so we're gonna let politics um, and personal relationships in some cases, or egos of other people get in the way of us having truly amazing marketing and truly amazing go to market strategies and company and performance and if you were to ask that point blank to any leader they'd say of course we would do what's best for the business and so part of it is you know that whole self accountability com- component where we get to get comfortable enough where we can ask those questions and and that exercise of saying well if if i was fired tomorrow which we, we all could be fired at some point and you know, and, and that, that your, your successor comes comes in, like, would they do the same thing? You should probably do that every six months anyways, <laughs> yeah. uh, just to yeah. make sure, right? Um, it, the, Become your own eye in a experience. sense,
1: you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, you constantly, people use different things. You, you have to reinvent yourself, right?
1: Well, Drew, thank you so much for joining this show. It's great to talk about all these fun topics from culture and <laughs> growth and hiring and interviewing and behaviors and talent optimization. It's awesome stuff. So thank you for your friendship and uh, thank you for joining.
0: Like, likewise, Erica. Um, you've been nothing but a pleasure to work with and uh, I love talking about this stuff. Anyone, feel feel free to reach, reach out. Always happy to share stories, connect, and see how we can help each other.
1: Thanks for joining us today for The Get. Join us next time with another guest. Till then, follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify, or check us out on LinkedIn and Twitter so you don't miss a thing.